to explain why interest rates affect valuations, like one, it, it sucks money out into a new asset class, which is treasuries, right? So like already more dry powder is going to a new asset class that it wasn't going to last year. No one was buying treasuries in, when they were 0%. Now they're 4.5%. More, more liquid capital just goes to that. But really the, the big thing is, uh, yeah, people were, I don't know about seven times turns. I'm sure you saw that in your banking days, Jason, but like 5X EBITDA. So if you have a $10 million EBITDA business, um, a private equity group will take out $50 million against that 10 and then give you that as, as part of buying it, right? The debt is held on the business. And the reason why they do it is to juice the returns because it's the less deployed capital, right? Uh, and they do that because, oh, the interest rate 0%, it's free money or whatever. We'll pay it back when we sell this business, right? Uh, what they're looking at is, is you know, investment on... You know, they're all looking at like how much LP dollars did they take and what's the return on that. And if they get debt, it just helps juice everything. And then they get paid extra because they get carry on it or whatever. Um, but when interest rates go up and banks be, banks implode, no one wants to lend you any money, it stops going from five turns or four turns or three turns to one turn or zero turns. And those turns affect, directly affect your valuation, right? So just take that off the top of your valuation. And that's why part of it is being suppressed. It all started with a rumor, a whisper about a private WhatsApp chat where nine-figured entrepreneurs swapped insights, information, and deals behind closed doors. And now, for the first time ever, these operators are pulling back the curtain on their clandestine world right here on this podcast. You're about to witness something truly remarkable. A glimpse into the minds and businesses of the world's most successful operators. So sit back, relax, and stay glued to your headphones. The chat is about to begin. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Operators Podcast. This is either episode three or four or five. Who knows? We've tried a lot of times. Podcasts are harder than you think they are. Uh, but as always... <laughs> It's Sean, the best Jason Calacanis impersonator. We have Mike from Simple Modern. We have Jason from Hexclad. My trusty trio of guys I'm always talking to. What's going on? Got the mountains in the background. Thought I'd tease everybody with this. Mike's got his Jason. nice family photos here. Nice family episode today. Guys, I'm yeah. two days out from Maui, so I'm doing really good, Sean. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Mike, you're always in the office. Jason, you're always on vacation. So uh, what's what's going on with that, man? my friend. I think three out of three podcasts, you're, you're sitting out here in the woods. Dude, did, so, did you see uh, my tweet this morning, yesterday, me opening the gate for UPS at the warehouse to uh, – to get those propaganda. shipments out. Hustling, baby. Hustling. <laughs> That's um, not fake news. So, Jason, are you taking private jets up to up to Northern California now? Is that how big Hexclad is or is it just helicopters? <laughs> no, it's uh it's it's united. There's a good hop from Monterey from LAX to Monterey. All right. All right. Well. I, I feel taunted by your background, Jason. I just want to say as somebody <laughs> stuck in Oklahoma, I feel <laughs> No mountains in Oklahoma. No, not a lot of views like that in in uh, the great state of Oklahoma. You know, speaking of going to Maui, last time Mike went to Maui, he was flying south by southwest and he got like caught in a snowstorm and like that big fucking <laughs> explosion in, in December. 
so hopefully you're, are you flying private this time? Mike? Listen, gentlemen, I'm not. Listen, gentlemen, if you ever wake your kids up at three 30 in the morning and tell them they're going to Hawaii, you pack up all the stuff you get in the van and about five 30, you tell them, Hey, the trip's canceled because, uh, our, our airline can't put us on the plane. You, you do not want to live that. I can just say that from personal experience. And then I get home and I'm like, you know what? We're going, I'm going to book tickets somewhere else. I, I got with American, I got all the way to the checkout confirmation page and I don't know what it was, you know, like a thousand dollars a ticket or whatever. I hit checkout and they're like, oh, we're sorry. We won't honor this price anymore. And they doubled it like in an instant. They like, I saw the real time nature of those systems just gouge the, the heck out of me. So uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't love that experience. All right. It's like Facebook. They're listening. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they, they, they know when you'll pay more. Um, but all right, guys, we have a awesome list of topics. We're going to go through as always shout out Northbeam. Thanks Northbeam for the support, the sponsorship and the data they give me so I can run my store, but we're going to go over, uh, people costs, revenue, and you know, is there a good ratio should we be looking for? We're gonna go over some some panzerisms. We're gonna we're gonna link back to that. We're gonna talk about asymmetric risk, and then we're just gonna talk about some current topics. So to kick it off, revenue and people cost. Mike, we were talking about this in chat. We had a good conversation about it, and I wanted to ha- you know really have you kind of frame it for everybody. Yeah, so I thought it was great when we discussed it, mainly because I just feel like this is an area that I've really been all over the map and have thought about it over the years. Uh, I think early on, uh, and I've seen discussion on Twitter around subjects like this, it's like, hey, how much in revenue per employee should you run or like what percentage of revenue should you spend on people? Um, And pretty much what I've learned uh, at this point is that that's not super helpful, Um, that actually the most helpful thing I was looking at our, uh, you know, like our goals, OKRs or whatever for the year, we actually think about, okay, what is our profit? after marketing costs. And we want to hit a percentage of that as our people costs. And I thought, okay, that's a pretty good way to think about it. Like we're going to try and hit 25% of our profit after marketing that we're going to invest in people. Uh, And I think there's a couple things, reasons why it's good. One is, you know, we were talking about it in chat, like Ridge, for example, I don't know, your margins are like infinity. I I don't know how you do it. You pay like, uh, I don't even know what your margins are, but they're like triple mine. Um, and so what it looks like if you start looking at revenue and as a percentage of revenue, I don't know that it's like apples to oranges. Um, so I think if you look at it after you, you have all the, the costs, the marketing costs and everything else, you're getting a little bit more of a metric that makes sense. Plus you're really getting into like, Hey, am I running a profitable business? If your people costs make sense as a percentage of your profit after marketing, at least, you know, you're running a profitable business, right? Right. And Mike, and you know, when we were talking about this, Ridge has been through a million different ways thinking about this, right? And we started with like, okay, $2 million per person. Like that's our target, right? This came up because it cost Ridge $811,000 in people costs in April to run our business. So that's my salary, Connor's salary. It's our 50 plus whatever US employees. It's our international team. It's everything, right? Some contractors are in there. And I was like, hey, is this a lot? <laughs> I was like, I'm like, hey, 800 grand is a ton of money. Like, I just want to cross-reference it with everybody. And the thing you realize is like, oh, it is apples to oranges, right? You know, talking to Jason, Jason runs his own warehouse. I don't, right? So I asked Jason, like, what's his revenue per person? And he told me to go fuck myself. So Jason, what, do, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you're right. I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a waste of time to talk about this in percentage of anything, 
because it's it's people just sort of get lost in trying to calculate and be um be too specific with stuff i just think that this one is like for us we we look at we we spend into a margin we just know where we want to be and we we'll take bets on in, in many places including people based based on that margin and yeah, it's just you guys sort of hit a lot of the points that i was thinking about in terms of it being apples to oranges it the bigger issue that i think this implicate implicates with me or just triggers in my mind is how people false precision people get like all wrapped around the axle about oh what's my revenue per employee what's my percentage of of employee cost to revenue and it's like those things are all fine to look at you know they're helpful but there's no right or wrong answer and i just think people can really get lost um in even even comparing us to ridge or us to simple modern you know we're all so different in every way and so whether you're talking about operating costs people costs or marketing it, it's just like it's all it's all really different and it's very hard to apply like strict rules to it um but you know from my perspective it's it's like you kind of know the people that you need you know how much they're going to cost and it, it, we're also in a stage of hyper growth so it's a little bit different for us it's like you know let's let's hire the right people um, but we're not that concerned about the cost of the people right now right so jason i think you you hit a, a really interesting topic which is false precision right because so many people in our space or in public companies like they're they're looking at like a very stable thing and then building spreadsheets off of it yeah, that doesn't work when I know Hexclad's growing 200% year over year. It's like, I don't know where the rocket ship lands, so I can't figure out revenue per person because I don't know what the next 12 months look like. And then Mike had this point that, you know, it, it took six employees to land Walmart as an account and manage the first hundred stores. It takes seven employees to manage the next 3000 stores, right? So like the, the, the team numbers didn't grow at all, but the revenue quadrupled. And one person in our chat, not going to name names, has an Amazon heavy business and his payroll cost is the same as mine. His business is twice as big. He's like, you're, he's like, yeah, you have too much fat on your team. And I'm like, you motherfucker, it's a different <laughs> business, right? I'm a luxury brand. You are and like, he has a great brand. It's really, really awesome. He's building some great stuff, but it's, it's, it would be like comparing a wholesale heavy account, right? Or, or something else. It's just, it's different stages of the business. So that's, that was my takeaway, Mike, anything you want to add there? Yeah. I think a couple of principles that are helpful to me. Uh, one is like you really incentivize people around driving contribution margin. I think I've seen this get talked about a lot online and I think it's really wisdom. Like for a long time, I really like would try and incentivize or pump people up around revenue, but that's not what pays the bills and that's not what helps people to earn more. And so running your business where you're pointing everybody to contribution margin, you're like you want to earn more, you want to have a big bonus, like this is how you accomplish it. And I think the other big thing I'd say is like, I feel a high level of responsibility by I, I uh, hire, right? Like I feel like there's kind of an implicit contract kind of between me and that person. If they have a family, their family that I'm going to try and do right by them. So one of the reasons I try not to get heavy is just because I don't want to get into a situation where I ever have to let somebody go because I've been bad at budgeting, right? And I know different people think about this different ways. You should but, call you know, Facebook Jason, you talk and tell to, them that. Yeah. 
you you talked about it last week and I agree. Like it's like, listen, you're disrupting, you're destroying people's lives when you hire them and then you turn around nine months later and are like, oh, never mind. You know, we don't need you after all. Like, you know, it's people aren't like commodities to be bought and sold. And so I get pretty fired up and pretty passionate about it. So I always want to make sure I'm leaving myself room, number one, so the people on my team can earn more and can progress, but also so I don't ever have to like make team decisions because I've been stupid and haven't budgeted well. Dude, that is awesome, right? Uh, I, Two false things that people think equal success are how much money you raised and how big your team is, right? Like fast.com, the one-click checkout. We have 500 employees. We raised $100 million. The revenue was 85 bucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's like you know, because p- people love to point to those things. I think revenue is another one, right? Someone would be like, oh yeah, you know, we have a hundred million or five hundred million dollars in revenue. It's like, yeah, dude. But what? How much? Not even EBITDA. How much profit are you taking out of your business? And I think people forget about that. Um, I will say, Ridge is incredibly lucky. We've never had to let people go because of business conditions or cash flow con- conditions. We only fire people when they suck. So that's that's typically the 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 way we get bad people out of it. I had to fire somebody today. Found out they had two jobs. I'm like, fuck off, out of the business. Um, <laughs> We had to we had to do that. We didn't have to hire and fire anyone, but we just we kind of gave a speech to the whole company probably a couple weeks ago about that same thing. It's like we there's no side hustles, right? You're gone. Well, so here's here's another thing. Um, If you're growing, like our team probably has grown fifty percent in the past year, right? So when you're when your team is growing fifty percent or one hundred percent year over year you're going to get people in there that aren't good fits, right? Either they didn't scale with you or they suck at their jobs. It happens at every company. So I do think that every year, if you're not having natural turnover, you do need to cut the bottom five or bottom 10%. And it's like, you know, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a management method I use and uh, I can't pronounce it. So I'll send it over to Finn and he'll put it in the show notes. But it's, it's that like firing should be the most compassionate thing you do. It's not like, hey, I don't hate you. I'm going to take care of you. Here's severance. Like we're going to do everything perfectly fine. I'll help you get a different job, but you do not fit here. Outside of fraud or someone stealing from you, that's how every, every firing should go. But I have one question to throw to you guys because I've been chewing on this. When do you pay over market for someone on your team? So that's super interesting. Uh, I think the world's changed a lot where no one's quite sure what market is. And Ridge probably pays under market for a lot of roles, but we have the secret benefit called being remote. So like if, you know, someone on my team could go work at HexCloud in LA and make double probably, but then they got to live in LA, right? What's what's their take home pay? They got to live, you know, they're not living where Jason's living right now. They're living in downtown LA fighting off bums. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, but that, so. that paying above market question, it's, I think sometimes you, you get the right person and the, the extra money, it's like in the noise. They, they just, they make that money back for you so fast. You know, if you get a good person, I always say hire good people and figure out to do what to do with them later. And if you get the right person, they're just, they're just, they're so worth it. Yeah. A truly exceptional hire can change your business. One of the areas that I think it's true too, I, I was talking with our, our head of people yesterday about this is we're really good 
at buying low on people, like finding people right out of college or that are maybe making a career shift or whatever, where it's not obvious what their market value is or where their trajectory is really extreme, you know, kind of the slope of their growth rate and their market value. And I'm like, I'm willing to overpay early for people also that I think a year from now, you know, somebody whose market value might be 50K right now, but I think their market value in two years might be 90K. Like I'm willing to overpay uh, based on that potential sometimes because we've had a pretty good track record of making those investments. I also think like when we have somebody that we trust that we can rely on, that is worth some kind of a premium to your point, Jason, like you don't want to let, you don't ever want to lose people like that, that you can build around. Mike, the concept you're talking about, Peter Thiel talks about this and it's undiscovered talent. And he was saying that like you, the only way to build a 10 billion or hundred billion dollar company is with undiscovered talent. And he's like, that's how I built PayPal. That's how, you know, he coaches everyone to build their companies and it's yeah. Hiring people, other people won't hire. And I think the, the next evolution of that that we've seen is international talent. Cause I'll give a guy in Serbia 50 grand a year and he's like, I will work. I'll do whatever. I'll hustle my fucking ass off. That's undiscovered talent because Amazon's not, not bidding on that person. Right? Like he, he, he really wants to. Yeah, Ridge is so good at that. I love your structure, Sean. You really, you know, just go where you have to go to get people and you know how to make them efficient and, and productive. That's you guys do a great job of that. Yeah. You guys, Sorry, go ahead, Sean. I was just going to say, dude, it's all my chief of staff. It's all just embracing international talent when, you know, we're making stuff all over the place now, like all across the country. We have a, a website in Europe. we got all these different people. We got, we, it's a global brand bringing global talent. So you, all right, you guys we're moving to the next one, Sean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'm so impatient. Uh, I've been waiting for this one, Sean. Yeah, Mike, I, I, you know, I was trying to give Mike a lot of time to talk because the next one, dude, Jason's going to fucking bull, bulldoze us. This is something he's passionate <laughs> about. It's named after him. Okay, Jason, what is a panzerism? Tell us all Look, about the, it. As the oldest member of the pod, I'd like to drop some weekly wisdom. We call, we're calling these the panzerisms, okay? From the mountaintop, the wisdom <laughs> of Jason Panzer. He looks uh, tough. He's got a beard. one with the Moses-like beard. But, you know, the, the panzerism for today is... Uh, one that I use a lot. It's the harder you work, the luckier you get. And um, I think it's really, it's it's very simplistic, but it, it means a lot. And I'll give you some examples. I mean, look, every successful business or person for that matter that I know has benefited from some luck, including me. And I've seen it all the time. It's like, how did this person achieve this incredible level of success? And maybe they seem super smart, maybe they don't, but a commonality is that they put themselves in a position to leverage the luck. The luck didn't happen without hard work. They weren't just sitting around talking about work-life balance. You know, they put in the work. And the luck was important, but the luck didn't happen without the hard work. Um, and, and as an example of luck, Mark Cuban, okay? I don't know if you know, guys know the story of Mark Cuban, but he uh, was sort of an average business person and he built a systems integrator type company in texas that he sold for like five million bucks um and i think his wikipedia page says he made like two million so that's great but he became a billionaire by selling a small small business to yahoo at the perfect time it was a 5.2 billion dollar deal there is a lot of luck in that 
you know, and and so I always see people on Twitter uh, posting about how hard their work is and what a grind it is and how they need a work-life balance and, oh, I've got to touch grass and I'm not saying don't have a life, but um, in my 20s and 30s, I never thought about how hard I was working. There was no social media to go vent on. You know, I went to business school while working full time. I sat for the CFA exam. It's three levels. You got to do it over three years. I literally studied for three fucking years for that after going to law school and uh, and passing the bar and all that. So when I see pe- it frustrates me when I see people venting on Twitter about hard they're, how hard they're working. And I was reminded about it when I saw this tweet of a slide um, from a big law firm Uh talking about the expectations of their junior associates. And uh, I think we have it here. I was reminded of, you know, it's like the expectation as a 25-year-old first-year lawyer at a good law firm is that you're going to grind 24-7. And yeah, the pay is good. You don't, you, you, but you don't just do it because the pay is good. You do it because it's going to pay off in the long term. And and this this little slide here is a little bit harsh. And I think a little, that being said, there, there are a lot of 20 somethings and 30 somethings in our space that are doing incredible things. Sean, you're one of them. I know a lot of people that work really hard, but this, this one really just, this got to me, the debate over this got to me and I wanted to raise it with, with you guys and, and see what you thought. Yeah, no, I think this, this is, an awesome topic, and I think there's two points that are worth bringing up. One is Jason knows what he's talking about. He was a lawyer and a banker, and now he's an executive. You don't get to run a billion dollar brand unless you're putting in, you know, sixty hour a week minimums, right? And the the second point that's worth bringing up is, uh, this isn't for a Walmart clerk. This isn't for a you know, even like a designer or or like an email job, like, you know, those are awesome, talented work. These are for people who will make a million dollars a year. Big law is one of the very few jobs. A surgeon in America might be lucky to make 300,000 or 500,000 or 800,000. I just hired a partner and a senior partner at at a top 20 law firm, and they were making a million dollars a year. It's really a W-2 job where you can make that salary. And this is the expectation if you want that salary. These people are incredibly rich. It's not 1%, it's 0.1% of people who who are doing this. And honestly, it's, yeah, there's some things that stick out, but work from home is a luxury. Like they're allowed to work from home, guys. <laughs> like like uh, I, I bankers at Goldman Sachs are, are in office right now, 80 hours a week. There's still a lot of uh, uh, you know perks to work in this job, and they're making a fuck ton of money. So that's that's what I wanted to say, Mike. What what, what are your thoughts? So what I wanted to say, I love what you're saying, Jason. I'd make it even broader. Like, listen, if you want to be great at anything in your life, you are going to have to be serious about it, and you are going to have to put in the hours and put in the work. We're talking about it in the context of business. Like, you want to be a great analyst, you're just going to have to put in a ton of hours. You're going to have to build you know, 2000 hours of models in Excel, if you want to be great at it, it's just, that's just what you have to do. But it's like, it's true of anything. Like, Hey, you want to be a good husband? You want to be a great husband? You have to put in the work, you know, and then you're going to be, you're going to be shocked at how much things go your way. And the, 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 the lucky breaks that you get, whether it's in relationships or work or anything else, when you're willing to work hard. 
So I love, and you know, like, I think this is the message that I would want for people to hear. Like we've all been lucky to get to where we are, right? Like there is an element of like, just things went our way, but we also put ourselves in position to get lucky, which is, I think what Jason's saying, right? Like we put in the hours and we put it, we, we were willing to have a bias to action. We were willing to launch that product. We were willing to say yes to that opportunity. We we're willing to get on that plane. And that put us in a position where, yeah, we, we probably all got really, you know, fortunate opportunities, but we wouldn't have been in that position if we weren't putting in the work. Yeah, look, guys, you you've know, got I to be obsessed. Connor. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I do think it's obsession. I think Connor, my CMO, had a really great point on this. He was talking about just like being strategic with the hard work because nobody works harder than Uber drivers, DoorDashers, retail employees, like they're putting in fucking, or like wait staff or line cooks, they're putting in grueling hours that totally suck. They're working harder than us. They're hard work per capita, way more than me, but it's just, you know, you know that's where the luck comes in. I, I'm lucky so that I can put in strategic hard work. Um, so anyway, I thought that was a good point. And Jason, you're right. You got to be obsessed, man. What are you obsessed with right now? We talked about it a little bit on the last episode. I mean, scaling our ops, content, community, and new products. There's just you were talking about ceilings in a conversation we had, Sean. I I, I keep using that that term now. You know, it's like you, you talked about HexCloud selling bed sheets. You know, we don't have a plan to sell bed sheets, but like HexCloud Home, like there's just so much that we can do. And it's, it's just, it's really fun. In fact, yeah. I was sitting around the t conference room table with, with Danny yesterday and um, we were just looking at some new products and this is when I, I like, I, I just realized Danny's not an e-com guy necessarily, but he's so smart. You know, he's like, he's just looking at the margins. Like, what are these things going to cost? How are we going to get the price right? People are always thinking about cost caps and whitelisting and, and stuff like that. But like, Start at the top of the PL. What are your cogs? It's like, we got to get the cogs right, guys. Start here. And you do that right, and, and you can make a lot of other mistakes. So, shout out to Danny on that. No, no, you're totally right. You know, this is actually a great segue to my topic, the best topic of the, of the afternoon. It's going to be <laughs> asymmetric risk. Uh, I love the panzerism. I love revenue per person, but I want to explain a concept of asymmetric risk, right? Um, you know, so often people are making bets that pay one-to-one, -one, right? It's black or red in a casino, right? Uh, and it's fine, but it takes the same amount of chips and you really should be looking for things that pay one to 50 or one to a hundred, right? And doing that inside of your business, a good example at Ridge is, you know, we launched pens, love our pens. We'll do, you know, close to $10 million a year in pens, the amount of effort and energy and creative shoots and everything, we should have launched rings. And we ended up launching rings. And now rings will do what pens will do in a year and a month. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's asymmetric risk, right? And that's, you know, what we should have considered is like, what's the TAM on pens? Like what's search volume, what people are looking for? And like, where can we take this category? And then looking at rings and being like, oh yeah, it's 10X is good, right? And if that's in hiring or in product expansion, I think people need to be thinking about how they can take asymmetric risk to their business. Uh, you know, Mike, you had an awesome take on this, right? And I would love to have you kind of explain the portfolio because that kind of changed my life. 
Yeah, yeah. So the way that I think about it is that basically what we are is, especially in consumer products, we're basically running a venture capital model. So a misconception that people have about venture capital, if you just said, hey, what are the best venture capital funds? You would say, well, they're probably the ones that have the least number of investments that go to zero. But that's actually not true. The very best investment funds actually have more investments that go to zero. They just have a lot more of the 50, 100, 1,000 X investments. That's what drives the return because of exactly what you're saying. It's so powerful when you hit a stripe that you can have 20, you know, bird scooters investments and it just it dwarfs them in terms of magnitude. And so the way that I think about it within the business is teach the team, get a team of people that are really smart, good stewards, good at making investments. And then say, we're going to make a portfolio of investments. And that's, and we're going to think about everything we do, like it's investing, like the people that we hire, we're going to think about the money we spend on marketing. We're going to think about the product development and the molds we pay for and everything else. We're going to think about all that as investments. And we're going to say, we want to make as many as asymmetric bets as possible. And we want to create this huge portfolio of asymmetric bets with all the money we're spending across the year. And the reason why we want it to be a portfolio is like any asymmetric bet. So like, let's say, Sean, I, you know, I said, hey, you can, you can bet $100 and there's a 60% chance it goes to zero, but there's a 40% chance it goes 10x. Would you take that? 100%. Sure, it's an asymmetric bet. But you know what? If you make that bet one time, very good chance you're getting zero right? If you put all your chips in on that bet, you, you did an asymmetric bet, but it could go really badly for you more than half of the time because 60% of the time it's going to zero. But if you make a portfolio of those bets, then all of a sudden the numbers tip in your favor. If you've got a hundred of those bets, now you're playing the odds and you're going to win big. And so that's what I tell our team, like, Hey, let's, let's create a huge portfolio of these asymmetric bets because we've got a track record of when this team makes investments, we've got good judgment. Some things are going to work, some things aren't. And we're not even going to necessarily know which ones are going to be the really big winners beforehand. Like you probably didn't know rings were going to be as good as they were. I remember when you were talking about watches even, it was like, well, watches is a really big TAM market, but it turned out that rings was the fit, you know, a, a better fit for where you guys are at right now. So, so that's what we're constantly doing. And my, my message to my, my head of growth is I want lots of bets. I want you filling the pipeline with bets. So even another way of saying it is like, Hey man, pens were a pretty great bet for you. Also, like they, they both were like big multipliers and it's really just like how many products can you get into? Because so that's what we're thinking about. We, there's a lot of just like with you, Jason, there's a lot of different places we can go. We've got a whole kids line. We're in backpacks. We've got obviously an adult drink where we've got a lot of different directions we can go. We're in licensing. And my message to the team is, hey, let's grow the pipe. Let me worry about getting the resources so that we're putting lots of chips on the table. And I want this big old portfolio of asymmetric bets. You know, and I want to tie it to, to the panzerism of the week, right? The way you shift the odds in your favor is by working harder, right? Because everything is is one-to-one -one in, in, until you get some leverage on that, right? And, you know, you can go back to 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 Hexclad and at, at Costco Roadshow fucking scraping it together, right, to where they are now. That hard work, let them take leverage, let them take bets and put them in this position, Um and it's it's the same thing with you guys, right? Like you know the 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 risk and hard work to get that first license to, and to make sure it's a it's a perfect partnership. Now, now you have this amazing moat that like nobody can touch, right? That's a perfect example. Like to get 
the very first license, uh, like basically the way it worked was we got the University of Oklahoma was our first license. The, the CLC, there's a way where if you live within a certain number of miles of a particular university, you can get some kind of special designation. So we hadn't sold anything in license and we were able to go through this, you know, really specific door to get that one license. And they wouldn't call me back, even though it was like my, my alma mater and I'd been kind of successful. They wouldn't call me back. I had to basically like borderline stalk the person in charge of making the decision to be able to get in front of them, to be able to get the decision. And it really wouldn't have made sense for just that license, right? The upside wasn't that big for that license. But the point that you made, Sean, that I think is a great point, is that it unlocked us then getting all these other universities. And that unlocked us getting the NBA and that unlocked us getting the NFL and then that unlocked Disney. And so getting through that first door was this huge asymmetric moment because of everything it made possible afterwards. Dude, dude 100%. Jason, anything to add there? Yeah, this concept of asymmetric bets. You guys make it sound so easy. Like there's all these bets out there you can take. <laughs> I mean, that's the hard part is finding the bets, guys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> An asymmetric bet to me is well, like you don't have to put that much in and there's potential for a big reward. Um, and, um, you know, we we take big swings where we can because because we can, because we um, have reached a certain level of success. And I heard I heard you say this, Sean, before, like you get to you get to like burn some money in certain areas every year. And that's kind of like that's a bet. You know, we. We took big, we, we like taking big swings, you know, that's just like, we have the luxury, um, to be able to do that, but, but not everyone does. So, yeah, I, you know, very famously I have, I have Sean's fun money and it's typically a million bucks a year I get to burn. I think this year it's closer to 5 million. Um, and I'll, I'll let you guys know what I do with it. But Jason, I can think of a big asymmetric bet that you took and it's not the obvious one that everyone's going to name. It's it's the Haley Bieber deal, right? You you Haley Bieber top five most famous people on earth, right? And you decided to uh, you heard she was doing a cooking show, and you didn't. I didn't, I'm not gonna say you went all in, but you took a big bet on that. I think it's driving asymmetric rewards. It's a okay. whole new audience nobody was catering to, and you 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 serve a bunch of people. So I'd love to hear about like how you guys thought through that. Well, it, part of it goes back to. The harder you, you work, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Like we somehow got cookware into Haley's hands a couple of years ago. And I don't know whether we gifted it or we bought it or a PR agency got it. I don't even remember. But, you know, we've seen her a couple of times post on stories, she's making mac and cheese or doing something like this. And it was, oh, wow, Haley Bieber's using your cookware. That's cool. And then independently, Haley and her team decided to do a cooking show. And we saw the first episode and included our Hexlad pan. You know, you can't miss a Hexlad pan, which is something that we're lucky for. Like, I get texts and calls all the time saying, like, you know, Hexclad's like the TikTok cookware. It's everywhere. It, it's probably not everywhere. It's just that you can see it because you know it, it, it's ours. But, you know, when that happened, we're just like, Haley's, you're right. It is, it is, a, it's a big swing. It's asymmetric in that her demo isn't necessarily Hexclad demo today. But I think all those young people are going to grow up and start cooking. And it's like everyone wants to focus on selling into their demo. Oh, well, this is not our demo. Well, well, what about getting new demos? So that's that's a swing. You know, it's a swing at a new demo. Yeah. 
you're you're aspirational to all the 22 year olds out there watching Haley Bieber cook grilled cheese or whatever, man. That's awesome. Okay, Mike, I think you got one more, and then we're gonna kick it over to the North Beam Power Minute. Yeah, last thought here for me is just this: if your team is afraid of losing money, you're not going to hit the really big home runs. You're not going to hit the grand slams, and like it's easy to have a results driven culture where it's like people get yelled at when, when when you make a bet and it doesn't pay off and but the biggest point i would make i'm finding that i have to make a culture where my people understand and expect that some things aren't going to work out like when amazon tried a phone and it didn't work bezos is like yeah we made a big bet we lost you know tens of millions of dollars and we're going to do it a lot more in the future because we have to you know, because if we're not doing that, then we're not going to be hitting the AWSs and we're not going to be bringing out the big investments. We're not going to be bringing out the big home runs. And so that that's probably my last piece of advice is you got to create a culture where it's okay to make bets that don't play out and don't, don't return things. Because if you have a culture of fear, people are going to play it safe and safe bets aren't asymmetric. Dude. Yeah. Uh, I always say that I make the biggest mistakes in the entire company. It's like, and I don't get fired. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, it should be a culture where you're allowed to, to, to fail as long as you're trying to, to win something. You know what I mean? It's like, Hey, this is my thesis. It wasn't stupid. And it blew up in my face. We're like, Hey, fuck it happens to me all the time, man. Just, just, just keep rolling. Um, so that's it guys. Where you really need North beam is right now today. I'm going to spend equally on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. I got influencer partnerships going live. I got fucking email newsletters. And if that sounds like your business, you need something. We use Northbeam. It fucking works for us. It's great. Uh, why do you need something? Everyone is trying to compete for the same sale. What that means is Facebook's going to say they, they got it. Google's going to say they got it. The influencer coupon code's going to be in there. Who the fuck do you give it to? That's the problem North Beam solves. And it's really important when you're spending north of a million dollars a month. Jason, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong or tell me to shut up. Let me, let me jump in because I, I use North Beam a lot. Um, I mean, I wake up. One of the first things I do is check is like I just flip, I flip open the dashboard and like I, I want to see the numbers. I want to see how we did yesterday. Um, it's just an integral, integral tool for us and and I also just I just trust in the in their data. I agree with you, Sean. If you're just spending on one channel, you, you don't you don't need to get that crazy. And people go. Let's go back to the false precision conversation. Like it's just come on. But we, for example, we ran a TV commercial last night on the Laker the Day. Yeah, on Lakers. Big time. Yeah, like we're spending money there. We're spending money everywhere. We're, we're going to start doing podcasts. You know, we're doing direct mail. We're, you need a place, you need a repository to, to see all that, you know, somewhere. And you can, you can go and build your own dashboard, but why do it? So I, I love it from a dashboard perspective. And I love that I, I trust the numbers that I'm getting to be as good as, as, a, as basically a former financial modeler myself. I know all models are wrong. Like everyone's model is wrong. Yeah. That's one thing that, you know, but, um, how good can you get it? How how hard do you work to get your model to be tight? And I know the the team at Northbeam are are doing that. I think they're stronger on on analytics, and maybe they could be a little bit stronger on marketing. 
but that's why they're here with us. <laughs> so here's what I'd say. North Beam is like the hex clad uh, of attribution. And why attribution matters is everybody's trying to answer the same question. Why did things happen? Right? Why, why did my sales go up? Why am I hitting my numbers? Why, why are things running hot? Why are my CPAs down? And you need a tool when you are serious and you're dealing with serious levels of revenue, you need a tool that helps you understand why things are happening. And that's what Northbeam does. All right, let's move on to current topic of the week. So this is no prep going into this. I want to talk about Shopify layoffs. I want to talk about Shopify stock popping. And I want to talk about Shopify selling uh, their logistics arm. So the first thing, sorry to the 20,000 people who lost their jobs. It, that sucks. I, I hope Toby and Harley are giving you severance and taking care of you or whatever. I'm sure you're talented. You built a great tool that helped me become who I am and, and, and give Ridge the power that we have right now. But uh, I think there's more layoffs to come. Jason, Mike, what are your thoughts? Start with Jason. For sure. I mean, you look across the board, it's Clavio let people go to uh, Wonderment, another SaaS or a tool letting people go. Uh, I, I've actually seen, it's been really good for us at Hexclad because there's a lot of good talent becoming available. And uh, it's, it, it's gotten a lot easier for us to recruit, actually. So I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty pumped about it. But, um, you know, Shopify is just another example of the, the bubble that, that, that happened during the pandemic for, for so many people. Like they just, just went nuts. Like Facebook went nuts. The, it was really easy to think that this growth was never going to stop. It's like, it's just amazing how you can get caught up in it all. And you need to have the right people to to stop that, I think. And I think Toby and Harley are they're awesome at, at a lot of things. But I don't know why at these big tech companies, they're look, I worked as the head of corporate development at a New York Stock Exchange listed tech company for a few years. And I used to look around and like we had so many engineers, so many engineers. And I was like, in the back of my mind, I kept saying to myself, I would love to get some private equity money. And take this thing private, kind of like Elon has done with Twitter, and uh, that would have been really fun. I think well, these people they they just felt like they just everybody got caught up in it, you know. Like we'll get we could get the stock prices too, current events too, because I know we like that one and it's related. So we'll, I'll wait. I'll hold on to that one, Sean. But yeah, I just think there was a bubble. People made bad decisions, and uh, and now is uh, it's come back around. Yeah, my theory is the whole world's returning back to 2019. So I I I I don't have the exact numbers, and it's because I'm bad at my fucking podcasting job. But uh, I think this gets them very close to their 2019 headcount, and I think Facebook is going to have another couple round of cuts, and I think everyone's just going to go back to 2019, right? E-commerce e-commerce penetration went there. I think you know what we saw during COVID was unsustainable. We're in quantitative tightening for the first time. To your point, Jason, there's a ton of great talent coming on the on, on uh, you know off the bench onto the field, but that's bad because you're hiring them, and that means that the unemployment number is going to keep going down, which means rates keep going up. But Mike, before we move <laughs> to stock price, what are your thoughts on people? Nah, we're going to stay. Well, two thoughts. I mean, the first thought is I think some of this is just a symptom of being public, right? When you're public, you can basically like fund or subsidize running at a loss. 
indefinitely by, by selling stock. And that allows you to do things with headcount that you would never, that we would never even consider as people that are privately held businesses, right? You can, and, and like, I think one thing that really emphasizes that is this is their second layoff. They did a 10% and then a 20%. And it's like, they knew their numbers. I mean, they're, they're functionally a SaaS business. Like they, they knew when they did the first layoff, like what the hit would be on their P and L and that that wouldn't get them to where they needed to be. And so I think, I mean, just managing culture, it is a disaster when you do several rounds of layoffs, you just create an environment of distrust and an environment where your very best people. Now you either have to bump them. So a lot of that, you know, savings that goes into your top people to convince them that they're not, you know, potentially going to lose their job. So the savings isn't really what you think it is. And then a bunch of people just start looking for jobs. You know, if they're, if you're in like the, you know, let's call it the 50th percentile of performance, which is, you know, a lot of people are in the middle of that bell curve. You're thinking, uh, I probably need to have some options lined up because my company has cut 30% of its people over the last year. And who knows when the next cut is happening. So I just think it's a culture destroyer. I think, you know, the best advice I've ever read is like, if you're, if you have to cut, you do it deep and you do as much as you're going to need even more than you might need and you you do it all at once so that then like the organization the culture can heal and shopify is getting stuck in this same loop that a lot of these tech companies are where they're just it's like they're bleeding them you know like when they used to bleed themselves with leeches back like 200 years ago somehow like it's like they're just slowly bleeding out employees and it's it's creating a you know it's creating a, a bad culture fantastic Mike, that's product, one of my favorite points but, you've made yet my that's one of my favorite points you've made yet like how bad is it culturally in these organizations? Like the people who are left, I mean, I think they're creating much more risk going forward by just like dragging this out and just, oh, what do you think, Sean? Right, so I, I can only talk about Facebook because that's the only people I'm actually really close with. And the people I know at Facebook are so happy to have cuts. They're like, they're like, you know, one, they've hired so many people. It was really hard to get career advancement that was meaningful. You just end up managing a team of people who manage teams. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of people at Facebook who really want to do awesome work. And when I talk to people who are like, dude, there's more cuts coming and they're so excited. They're like, cause I'm fucking good at my job. I'm going to, I'm going to keep crushing it here. Uh, and that's, that's from the revenue side of the business. Um, but I want to talk about being a public company and these cuts, right? So Shopify only did 1.5 billion in revenue in Q1, right? It's a ton of money, more money than I did, more money than any of us did. It's up 25% year over year. But it's still like, you know, what's the run rate on that? A, a 10 billion or, you know, maybe a 15 at this growth rate, 15 billion revenue business. Their stock price jumped 30%. They're up to an $80 billion market cap off of these, off of these cuts. So that's why I think. This is more of a, a a theoretical pondering, right? Because we're talking about oh, it's bad for culture. Like you know, there's all these cuts happening. Wall Street fucking reacted positively. They're like, hell yes! Like they love that they sold, uh, you know, their, their their fulfillment and logistics arm because they're like, go back to focusing on the core business. But then you have to think the core business. How do they increase their take rate? And now I'm going to talk for two minutes, and I'm sorry for everyone who's listening because I might be stupid, but you know. 
what Amazon does beautifully, right? And what they've built out, and it's it's very predatory for us as sellers, is their take rate is getting closer and closer to 50%. They are building their take rate up to be closer to a wholesale metric. And how do they get there? They charge us 15% to sell on their platform, right? Then they charge some sort of fulfillment fee on top of that. And then now it's it's the ad tax, right? It used to be, you know, two percent, three percent. Now it's a lot of people are running a you know 15% of overall sales going to their their ad budget. I think that's only going to go up. The only part of amazon.com's core business that's growing is their ad sales, right? And and their ad revenue. It looks like you guys froze. Did everyone freeze? Are you guys with me? No, I'm good. I'm here. Okay, perfect. So Jason, I'm going to kick it over to you. Uh, and I guess really the question is We've talked in the past about being a public company and what that really means. And and where do you think Shopify goes with employees from here, with stock price from here? Like, or am I getting this all wrong? Are they still a growth stock and they're going to be the next Amazon? Well, I really enjoyed your counterpoint to the culture aspect, you know, the way you talked about it with Facebook. It actually is really interesting to think about it that way. And like Mike and I might just have it wrong. Um, in terms of Shopify and being a public company. Um, I don't follow tech stocks as closely as you. I look more at the retail stocks and I'd love to talk about that in a minute. But, you know, it's just, it's real hard being a slave to the public markets. It really, it really is. And we talked about it before, you know, you make decisions on a quarterly basis as opposed to making long-term decisions and it's it's the whipsaw you know so there's like a whipsaw effect here i just i think shopify is a phenomenal business um i think they have like unlimited potential and you could be a good business and not be a good stock we talk about that a lot um i don't know if shopify is a good stock now sean i'm not i'm i don't buy individual stocks i'm not like you Right, right. I, I'm I'm the world's worst stock picker. Call me Jim Cramer, dude. Uh, but 25% of their revenue is from subscription. So that $1.5 billion number, it's like 300 or 400 million is actually from subscription. The rest of it's coming from payment processing, uh, shop pay, that type of stuff. So anyway, when I think about this business, I love Shopify. I think it's an awesome fucking tool. Their stock is still down 60% from all-time highs, even though it just popped 30%. And I've been saying this forever. I don't know how they get back to all-time highs. But Mike, any thoughts on that? Then we can talk about the world of logistics. Well, it's, it's the disconnect, right? I mean, like like running your company, it's not particularly hard to say like, hey, what should our company be focusing on? What drives value? What's hard is when a bunch of external people are telling you, hey, you're an $80 billion company when you're not an $80 billion company. Like, like that is, what is that? Six times revenue or like, I don't know. I mean, like at one point their, their stock was trading, it was like 20 times revenue. It's like, how is that ever like a possible valuation on something to grow into? So it's a lot of pressure on the management team. I mean, I agree with Jason, fantastic product. I mean, they've basically become the answer for if you want to start a website, uh, but they're also dealing with the the downside of being public. And, you know, listen, I, their CEO and founder has basically said, I think being a public company where, where you have the market's approval is like the best place that, that a company can, can be. I just disagree. Like personally, I think the best place you can be is pr- a profitable, privately held company that has clear mission. Like it's the easiest to win then because when you're public, 
you functionally have a directive from the outside of you need to justify this valuation at all times, but you don't set the valuation, they do, right? And that's really difficult. No, dude, 100%. Um, you know, Jason brought up Elon and Twitter. And I, I made this point, and I, I don't think a lot of people understand it. Like, there's certain things you can't do as a public company, right? Like, you will be if not fired, like a lot of things are just considered illegal. And if you need to make 70% head cuts or something like that, you can, or like, you know, drastically change the, the, the vision of your company or focus on a new product. It can only happen at a private company. Like it can't happen at a public company. Like the public markets really respect, uh, you know, and, and cherish stability. And I think that's why the stock's up because they got rid of the logistics arm, right? Like, you know, it was a bolt on acquisition that didn't go great. It was always this idea that like, oh yeah, we're going to build out the next Amazon, right? I think what Wall Street really respected was them getting rid of that. Flexport's the best logistics player in the space. They got equity in it. They'll, they'll play nice together, right? I think that is what Shopify has done really great is that they find partnerships with with people they need and they get equity in them. They did the same thing with a firm, right? Um, but have you guys this is just just you know shooting the shit have you guys ever got quotes from shopify logistics to take over your business i don't think we have um i i we've been pretty happy with our providers and and i don't think we have i mean i think uh i've talked with ryan briefly about kind of their plans and some of the ways I think it can be better. I mean, you guys know this, but it is really common to complain about your 3PL uh, <laughs> in the e-commerce world. Like you, you don't have to say much to get most people complaining. So it's like when you find a situation where like, you know, every, every, uh, you know, e-commerce company, 3PL relationship has its, its warts and its tough spots. But if you have a generally good one, you're, you're in the minority and you, you count yourself thankful. But, uh, it definitely can get better. Like it's very fragmented. The technology, you know, is, is not very good. There's a couple of roll-ups going on. I mean, Flexport, I think is, is a really credible, especially with who they brought in from Amazon. Like, I think, I think they could make some real waves here. Nice. Flexport's a really interesting um, company. Actually. I, I didn't really hear much about them up until like a year ago. And it, this is when, when freight prices were insane. When we, when we finally were like, okay, Maybe we should shop around a little. We actually have a really great um, freight broker that we Hexcabs use forever, and we're super loyal. So um, we, I mean, there's plenty of business. So we we started out doing like 20 containers a month, and we're doing 10 10x that now. So, um, bro, the, 20 containers a month is so much fucking product. <laughs> like that's so yeah. Well, much ours product. are you know we probably fit like a thousand between a thousand and two thousand units in a container in a 40 foot container because our boxes are bigger than we don't sell cute little wallets um but the, hey hey they're not cute <laughs> <laughs> i think we do 500 a year or something they're, at this they're point, cute i was talking to some, a woman yesterday who really wants one in to fit in her purse so okay. i have a feeling oh, it might wallet. be a female Mike. it might be something there for you guys <laughs> yeah. We're, we're trying, but Mike, you're doing 500 containers a year. This is, it's this is the boring insane. part of the podcast where we just talk about logistics. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, I've got a whole thing that's not boring, which is the human brain 
is not able to connect numbers on a screen to the physical world very well. And I think COVID taught us that, but like I can look at a screen and I can see the number a hundred thousand and I can say big number. And then I can see the number a million and be like, well, that's a bigger number or 10 million, even bigger, but I can't conceptualize what that is. Like when was the last time I've been around 10 million of anything, right? Other than like blades of grass, but you know what? We're going to sell like 12 million cups this year. I, it, my brain is like incapable of understanding what that means in the physical world, right? Because I'm not like on the docks, like receiving all this. Stuff. That is an absurd amount of cups. Like it's like just some, uh, you know, crazy football field stacked all the way to the brim of the stadium full of cups or so, you know, it's maybe several stadiums. I don't know. I, like I said, I can't even conceptualize it. I don't know how many that is. It's a lot. I know it's a lot. And so I think this is one of the disconnects that happens in e-commerce is that we all sit playing, you know, tap, 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 tap on our keyboards and, and make the numbers go up. But, but a lot of times we don't appreciate the physical side of what's going on behind those numbers. And we all learned a lesson in 2022, 2021 of like, Hey, the world still runs through the physical world, right? The stuff has to be shipped. It has to move around. It has to get to the customers. The three PLs are a critical piece of that. I mean, when Dave Clark went from Amazon to Flexport, that was a pretty good sign. Flexport was going to get really serious. I mean, Dave Clark basically built the FBA infrastructure, which is the best. I mean, you might say in the history of human civilization, right? It is the best. Uh, it's like a, a marvel of the modern world that fulfillment center system. And so it's not surprising Flexport's trying to do this. But my big thing that I say to our team all the time is like, number one, we, I try and force people to go and be at our 3PL and like work with their hands some because you have a whole nother level of respect for that work once you've done Like Jason, like I loved what you were posting on Twitter that you're like out there, like, hey, some stuff showed up, like boots on the ground because otherwise it's just so easy for people to get, especially with remote work. I mean, it's possible to have an e-commerce company with people that are never around a shipment, never seen dude. a container get unloaded or a truck loaded, right? Dude, we, we had an employee, you know, we launched key cases a couple of years ago and, you know, they did first year eight figures. And like, we had an employee like 18 months after being like, yeah, I've never seen one of those. And I'm like, oh, I have to kill you. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, this is changing our business and you've never seen one in person. Yeah. So I'm like, look, you're, you're going off the fucking, uh, the, the blue collar unionism type shit that I, that I, I, I blow off on. But Jason, you're the only one that I know that actually is in the warehouse every day. So you're living the fucking life. Uh, anything you want to add to logistics? No, but getting back to Flexport and, and, and Shopify, it's really interesting to me, and I'm one, I want to hear from you, Sean, because I think you're closer to it. Do you think that really was the strategy that it's like, okay, we're going to go and we're going to stand up our own Amazon, right? Have soup to nuts. And they just decided, nope, not going to work. Is, is that really what happened here? Oh, I, I think, and you know, Finn will have to do the research and pull it up. I think they said that they were building an Amazon competitor. I think that was their idea to actually build an FBA competitor. And like Mike said, you slowly realize like, oh my God, FBA is a, is a marvel of the modern man. It's, right. it's, it's the equivalent of the space program or bullet trains in Japan. <laughs> is it the most moted business in the world? in the history of the world. Like there is no way you can shortcut it without billions and billions. And I mean, probably hundreds of billions of dollars of CapEx. How do you compete with it? 
right? Well, it's the most moated, non-regulated business. How about that? Because that's a great point. Yeah, to, to try without to government. Insulin. <laughs> yeah, uh, but so I so Jason, you, to, you, back to the back to you know Flexport fulfillment, whatever. I do think that was their goal. You know, they, we have all these merchants; they have all this volume. We could we could make an extra dollar or two dollars per shipment or whatever. But then they realized, oh, you know, my hands are soft because I'm I'm I do stuff in the coding world, and now I think they're pivoting to be a fintech. I do think that, you know, if the regulatory environment in America changes, they will buy a Pinterest or they'll buy a Snapchat. They'll do something like that. They'll make a more gated shopping, you know, basically what Twitter's trying to do. Like they'll add payments in there. Shop pay is incredibly popular. I think that's the next evolution of the company because right now it's how do you justify how do you justify the valuation, right? Um, when you have a five percent take rate to GMV. It's even lower. It's I think it's lower than five percent. Like, how do you justify the valuation when Amazon is still doing bigger GMV at a way bigger take rate? So, I think they're going social commerce. That's that's my play, and I would get the fuck out of the physical world because the reason why Flexport is so good is because they're the only people, one of the only people, who are putting a modern interface to containers leave in China. And we all know how fucked up that world is. You know what I mean? Fighting for space on a boat that's going to be on a boat for eight weeks. Um, all right, guys, any parting words? Because I'm, I'm ready to wrap it. I'm fired up. That's it? That's all you storm. had? And could we do two minutes on, on retail stocks? Can we do two minutes on the stocks that are closer to us? Hell yeah. I mean, or just, yeah, or just yeah. valuations, you actually, not up. stocks. What you really got, Panzer? I, I feel a hot take coming from Jason. What do you got? I, I just, I've been talking to a lot of people lately about, about valuation and just sort of trying to figure out where, where things are going. And, and, and I just, man, it's rough. It's really rough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, right. So I talk I, to financial sponsors and it's like, they, they can't even value companies like ridge right now because like you're just doing too well and they're just like doesn't make sense the public comps are so bad there there's just it, the the overreaction it's just it's astonishing to me i mean it's not because i've seen it in various business cycles but um for all the all the folks in there a lot of people care about valuations right a lot we've got a lot of people that run brands and People have to wait it out, you know, it's just, just wait it out, build a business that you want to own forever and, and, and just wait it out. And just the, the conversations that I've been having with folks, just because I'm a former banker, I have a lot of friends in the, in the PE community. Um, I would think that people, when they see a really nice business would just, ju would jump on it. And I'm hearing about private equity firms passing on really nice businesses because they just can't square it to the public comps. And it's, uh, it's nasty out there. Right. So I have, I have two pieces of news. One is an antidote. Uh, you know, businesses our size, right, that are going to sell for, you know, let's, let's say we're all going to sell for a billion dollars, right? That is still considered a mid-market deal. I know that's crazy to a lot of people. A billion dollars is a life-changing amount of money. You know, that typically wouldn't go to a Goldman Sachs, right? But now I we we all know an entrepreneur who's who's going through a process, and Goldman Sachs is his banker representing him through that, and his business is you know our size or whatever, going to sell for under a billion bucks, and 
Goldman Sachs is trying to court us and trying to court everybody. And I talked to him like, why, what are you guys, why are you guys doing this? Like you guys have teams of 50 people. You guys throw on deals. You guys try to do the Microsoft deals. And they're like, there's no good deals right now. These are the best deals we've seen. <laughs> Profitable companies that are growing. They're just trying to fucking cash flow. And, and, you know, I think, I think they're, they're hungry for good deals. So, uh, the second piece, this is future news, the blow up of roll-ups. People care about valuations. People watching mm -hmm. the show, they want to sell their business. Mm -hmm. There was a whole new category of buyer that didn't exist pre-COVID. And that was the roll-ups of the world, the Thrasios, the Berlin groups, whatever. Um, everyone heard they raised a ton of money, $5 billion, right? Or $10 billion with the capital raise for roll-ups. That was debt. <laughs> and it's 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 not equity capital, right? They owe that money to somebody. And it the most of most of those deals are are issued out on variable rates, right? Kind of like commercial real estate. And it's coming around to be like, oh hey, that rate is now 17%. And do you guys know what the set the payment on 17% of five billion dollars of the debt is? More than they can afford. So there's gonna be a lot of forced liquidation happening and valuations are just going down. So that's my take. Kick it over to Mike. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, like the question of how are you dealing with interest rates is something that we're all thinking about. It's definitely slowed us down on some CapEx stuff uh, and thinking about hey, how much how much equipment are we buying and what are we doing with things? Because and it, not only is it hitting valuations of companies, but it's like it's just a lot more expensive to borrow. But hey, that's that's the great thing for everybody listening. The great thing about running a profitable company is that you've got a lot of different ways you can play your hand and it doesn't matter what the environment is. There's a win out there, you know, regardless of the environment. So feels pretty good right now to be able to run a company that's that's profitable in this position that doesn't have a bunch of debt. Uh, I mean, maybe the other thing I'd say is just a reminder to everybody, there's only one way to go bankrupt and that's with debt and it taken on debt. And we, we've talked about this on this podcast before, but like e-commerce and debt, it's very rare that somebody has shown me a situation where debt has paired well with e-commerce. Oh, Yeah. You know, I think you asked like how how are you guys dealing with interest rates? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I have absolutely no debt. I'm buying treasuries. <laughs> so what Rich <laughs> is doing is buying eight figures worth of treasuries and I'm making four and a half percent on them. That's that's what I'm doing with my money. So Jason, how about you, man? Treasuries are definitely the way to go right now. I agree. Um and actually but actually, you know, if you have a modest amount of leverage. You know, if you're a growing profitable business, I, I guess I grew up in that sure. world, so I'm I'm comfortable with a, a modest. The the days of seven times EBIT, you know, seven times EBITDA leverage uh, deals are long gone. But uh, I think it's healthy and and provides forces a little bit of discipline to have one to two x EBITDA and debt. I think it's also good um, in terms of capital allocation potentially. Um, I do think rates, I, I think we might be done with with the 25 base points that we just got. Um, I'm calling that right now. I think, I think we might be done. I think, I think we got one more. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to find out. We got Sean and it's still going up and Panzer is holding, holding steady. Uh, and one thing, uh, Jason's talking about uh, turns of debt on EBITDA and how that ties to valuations. Uh, to explain why interest rates affect valuations. Like one, 
it, it sucks money out into a new asset class, which is treasuries, right? So like already more dry powder is going to a new asset class that it wasn't going to last year. No one was buying treasuries in, when they were 0%. Now they're 4.5%. More, more liquid capital just goes to that. But really the, the big thing is, uh, yeah, people were, I don't know about seven times turns. I'm sure you saw that in your banking days, Jason, but like 5X EBITDA. So if you have a $10 million EBITDA business, um, a private equity group will take out $50 million against that 10 and then give you that as, as part of buying it, right? The debt is held on the business. And the reason why they do it is to juice the returns because it's the less deployed capital, right? Uh, and they do that because, oh, the interest rate is 0%. It's free money or whatever. We'll pay it back when we sell this business, right? Uh, what they're looking at is, is you know, investment on... You know, they're all looking at like how much LP dollars did they take and what's the return on that. And if they get debt, it just helps juice everything. And then they get paid extra because they get carry on it or whatever. Um, but when interest rates go up and banks be, banks implode, no one wants to lend you any money, it stops going from five turns or four turns or three turns to one turn or zero turns. And those turns affect, directly affect your valuation, right? So just take that off the top of your valuation. And that's why part of it is being suppressed. Jason, you're the banking banking guy in the group. Did I get that come on, right? You, I think you uh, you were a banker or an equity research analyst in your previous life, Sean, or at least in your next life. So I love. I actually miss you digesting Yeti earnings. Uh, maybe we, you got to bring that back on a pod. But now, meantime, great chatting, everybody. Harder you work, the luckier you get. Remember that. Harder you work, the luckier you get. <laughs> Panzerism of the week. All right, we'll end it there. Mike, Jason, appreciate you coming on. As always, it's the Jason Calacanis impersonator. Talk to you guys later. Bye. <laughs>